0: Jesus said, My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. Speaking to his flock in the Archdiocese of Portland in Oregon, we join Archbishop Alexander Sample as he reflects upon our faith, culture, and life in the church on The Voice of the Shepherd. Joining Archbishop Sample is your host, Dina Marie Hale, and now, the Voice of the Shepherd.
1: Greetings and welcome to The Voice of the Shepherd. I'm your host, Dina Marie Hale, and along with Archbishop Alexander Sample, today we're going to reflect upon the Feast of Epiphany, entering into a new year, and some of the special celebrations that we recognize as we move into this new year in the Christmas season. So as we begin, Archbishop, would you please guide us in prayer?
2: Certainly. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Heavenly Fathers, we continue during these days of Christmas to rejoice in the great gift that you have given to the world, the gift of your own Son, to bring us life and salvation. We ask you to be with us during this radio broadcast to anoint our lips so that we will speak words of inspiration to our listeners and anoint the ears of our listeners so that they may receive from you, Father, a word that will give them encouragement and hope and joy and peace. So we place this time in your hands, Father, as always, asking you to lead us and guide us in all these things we ask through Christ our Lord. Amen. Holy Mary, our hope, seat of wisdom.
1: Pray for us. St. Joseph. Pray for us.
2: All the holy innocents.
1: Pray for us.
2: In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.
1: Amen. Well, Archbishop, I've already had this confused look to me of wishing somebody a Merry Christmas the day after Merry Christmas. I wish this man a Merry Christmas. And he kind of looked at me like, it's over. And I said, oh, no, we have Christmas for a while. But I think just to get started to look at the season and some of the feasts that help reveal who Christ is. And as we recognize his birth, we get more of the story. We hear about some of the accounts, of course, from the shepherds. We talked about the magi that we'll be hearing about with the Feast of Epiphany. But give us a sense of this season and what we can really, glean from who christ is in our life
2: yeah i'm right with you dina marie with the uh the secular shutdown on christmas now (laughs) uh in fact the uh uh, gym that i go to all you know in the weeks building up to christmas they had uh electronic piano playing christmas music and lights up and everything else and i went there uh yesterday which was uh, just a couple days after christmas and uh everything's shut down, you know, it's My all day. over. <laughs> so, but, you know, we we know that as Catholics in our tradition, we only began the celebration of Christmas with the vigil mass of Christmas Eve. Up until that time, we had been in Advent. We were getting ready for mm-hmm. Christmas. But our, yes, our, so our our season of Christmas uh, extends from, of course, the crease of of the birth of our savior, the nativity itself and continues until the peace of the baptism of the Lord. And so it goes on for, you know, generally a couple of weeks or so, and we continue to celebrate. It's like the, what's the church does for us. We cannot, we cannot contain the joy that that fills our hearts at Christmas to just one day and Mm -hmm. then set it aside. The church allows us. And that's what I love about the church's liturgical calendar and tradition. She allows us to continue to celebrate, but not just to celebrate. It really, as you said earlier, Dina Marie, it's all about giving us time to reflect more deeply on the mystery that we are celebrating, to probe its depths, to look at it from different angles, to come to a deeper understanding of, of different events associated with with what we're celebrating, in this case the birth of our Lord. We do the same thing after Easter. You know we have seven weeks of the Easter season because mm-hmm. we we can't contain our our joy either to just uh, Easter Sunday. But the main reason the church gives us the season is not just so that we can celebrate, but that we can, ever more deeply understand spiritually uh, what it is that we are celebrating. We need time for meditation, basically. Mm -hmm. And so these days are really meditating upon and celebrating the mystery that we celebrated first at Christmas.
1: Absolutely. And I think when you talk about the church gives us this opportunity, you know, many people when we hit January 1 will have uh, maybe fireworks or they'll have these celebrations for the new year. But we in the church recognize Mary, Mother of God, and this particular title that recognizes Mary and who she is in relationship to God. Give us a sense of how we approach that new year, really honoring and looking at Mary as the Mother of God.
2: Well, you know, I'm all for celebrating New Year's, (laughs) right? although although I have to tell you, at at age 61, I have been at one Christmas or one New Year's Eve party in my entire life. One when I was in college, and I'm I'm in bed long before the the ball drops in Times <laughs> Square. Believe me, so I'm not a big uh, uh, New Year's Day, especially New Year's Eve, celebrating kind of guy. I, many people are, and that's fine. So I'm all for celebrating New Year's, but but the church. I was already we've already had our New Year's Day. That was the first Sunday of Advent. So in the church's liturgical calendar, and we should really, in some ways, also orient our lives uh, and, and, and synchronize our lives with the liturgical calendar. So our our New Year's Day in the church really is, is the first Sunday of Advent, and we celebrate on January 1st, as you said, this wonderful solemnity of Mary, the mother of God. So it's one of those Marian feasts. So we have many Marian feasts on the calendar, but this feast celebrates one particular dimension of who Our Lady is, by celebrating her as the mother of God, the Theotokos in in Greek, the God-bearer, the one who bore God. And really what we're doing, why why would this feast be important at this time? Well, we've just celebrated the birth of Jesus Christ, and we're continuing to celebrate it during this Christmas season. But who is it that was born? (laughs) You know, It was the Son of God, God himself in the flesh. And this this really goes back to a very, very early theological debate uh, in in the earliest days of the church, uh, as the church battled a heresy that denied the full divinity of Jesus Christ. In other words, he was not truly God, uh, that Jesus Christ was, you know, specially anointed, was um, given a, a sort of a divinization, but was not God himself in the flesh. And it really denies the full mystery of the incarnation. So to settle this dispute at the Council of Ephesus, um, the church solemnly declared that Jesus Christ is true God and true man. Uh, and this is, gets to the mystery of what we call a big theological term coming, warning, the hypostatic union, mm-hmm. <laughs> meaning the union between the divinity of Christ and his humanity. What this means is that Jesus Christ is both fully divine and fully human. He has a true human nature. So there is nothing missing. In in Christ, in terms of his humanity, so we can say he is truly human. He was truly a human being that was born. Uh, well, even saying a human being that gets a little uh, uh, trickling on the edges of heresy. That my itself, we have to be very precise and, and careful in the language that we use. He had a true human nature. He was mm-hmm. truly human, but he is also and remains so fully divine. So the eternal Son of God who has been with God from all eternity in the, in the unity of the Holy Trinity, took to himself a human nature in the womb of the Blessed Virgin Mary, but remained fully God. He didn't become less God in taking on our human nature in the womb of Mary. Now, we refer to the personhood of Christ, and when we refer to that, we're referring to his divine Personhood. I had this conversation with somebody recently that uh, is a very devout, lifelong Catholic, and it was a little confused on this point that, you know, Mary gave birth to a person. Women, mothers give birth to persons, uh, not to human natures. And so who is this person mm-hmm. that Mary gave birth to? this person that she gave birth to is the eternal son of god so she is not the mother of a human just a human nature in other words she she didn't just give birth to his his human body but she gave birth to his whole person and jesus is not a human person he has a human and this is very precise theological stuff going on here he has a truly human nature which he is united to himself, but he is not a human person. There's only one person in Christ. There's not two persons. There's not a human person and a divine person. There's a human nature and a divine nature, but there's only one person in that union of of human and divine. And that person is the second person of the blessed Trinity, the Son of God, the eternal Son of God. So at Ephesus, the fathers of the council could solemnly say that Mary is the mother of God because she gave birth to God in the flesh, in the person of the second person of the Holy Trinity, uh, Jesus Christ. So um, she's not just the mother of Jesus. She's just not the mother of Christ. She is the mother of God because the one who is born from her with a truly human nature and divine nature is one person, the, the second person, the Trinity. So we, we celebrate the feast of the, of the uh, solemnity of Mary, the mother of God uh, during the season, because that's what we're celebrating. Who was born? I mean, it's really, it answers the question, who was born at Christmas? Mm-hmm. And it is God.
1: Mm-hmm. Now, is this feast, Archbishop, a holy day of obligation
2: I'll be the first to say this to all of my listeners, whom I love dearly. Uh, The bishops really messed this one up, I think. (laughs) I'm sorry. Years ago, when we made uh, uh, adjustments to the liturgical calendar in the United States and we modified the Holy Days of Obligation, Yeah, uh, we confused it terribly, I think, and I wish we had just kept it simple and and straightforward as it had always been. But what what this means is that if a holy day of obligation, meaning obligation to attend Mass, if a holy day of obligation falls on a Saturday or on a Monday, the obligation is, is not there. So the obligation is lifted. If that would otherwise normally be a holy day of obligation at which we would be required to attend mass, if it falls again on a Saturday or a Monday, you know, in other words, adjacent to the Sunday, the, the bishops of the United States have lifted the obligation to attend mass on those solemnities, except, <laughs> here we go, and this is where the bishops really confused it, except for two, <laughs> Christmas Day and Uh, the, the, solemnity of the immaculate conception of Mary. Okay. Why? Well, of course, Christmas day is, is so important and so Mm -hmm. special. You just, how can you not (laughs) go to mass on Christmas day? Right. And the other reason that the immaculate conception is kept, even if it falls on a Saturday or Monday is because she is the patroness of the United States. Mm -hmm. She she is our patroness. So she's our patronal feast. So we can't uh, ignore that one either. So As I said, we got it really messed up and confused and people are confused and I wish we'd have just kept it simpler, but there it is.
1: The Just the way the days have fallen with Christmas being on Saturday this year and then the day after Christmas, the 26th for the Feast of the Holy Family, we have the same thing this weekend with Mary, Mother of God, beautiful day to honor our Blessed Mother. But then the Feast of the Epiphany again moves and we'll honor it on the 2nd of January. And and again, as you've been mentioning a little bit about how we recognize Christ, what do we learn from the epiphany and these other characters, they're noted as magi. Who are these men and what did they help us recognize of this very special birth that happened over 2000 years ago?
2: Yeah. Well, you know, you know, first to, to note that, you know, this is kind of a strange, strange year for Christmas because everything gets compressed. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, it's almost as compressed as it can get when, when Christmas falls on a Saturday, uh, we lose some days of the Christmas season because if, normally there's, there's uh, days between Christmas and the Feast of the Holy Family here. Boom, they're back to back. Right. And same thing now uh, with, with uh, the epiphany comes very fast as, as, as well. The epiphany. What does the epiphany mean? Uh, why, why this feast? And, and what does it symbolize? What does it say to us? It really speaks to us of the universal mission of salvation that Christ came to accomplish. The Israelites, the Jews, who looked forward to the coming of the Messiah, saw the Messiah as particular to the Jewish people themselves. In other words, he was coming to save them. He was coming as as the one who would really raise up Israel again as a great and powerful kingdom. They saw the Messiah uh, not as coming as Christ did uh, to deliver us from sin, to reconcile us to the Father, to open for us the way to, to heaven, uh, certainly not to uh, be betrayed and arrested and, and uh, undergo his passion and crucifixion. That was not the Messiah the Jews were waiting for. And that's why so many rejected him. In the end, it seems Judas rejected him for that reason. So the Jews saw the Messiah as coming for them. Uh, although there is the prophecy, Uh, that uh, God gives in the Old Testament that says that I will make you, meaning Israel, a light to all the nations. And that's what the the Feast of the Epiphany and the coming of the Magi, the wise men, symbolizes, is that Christ comes not just for one particular uh, ethnic group, cultural group, race. He comes for all. He comes for all the nations. He comes as the, the Savior of all the world and all peoples and all cultures and all languages and races. Jesus Christ is the universal Redeemer, the, the Savior. And so the fact that through the star, the star of Bethlehem, Christ is revealed in that star uh, as the light. But he is, he is revealed not just to the Jewish people of, of whose race he was, but he, he, that light of, of Bethlehem, the star of Bethlehem shines to the east and the Magi see it and know some great event has happened and follow the star uh, and the guidance of the star to Bethlehem. And there at, at, the, at, at the home of, of Mary and Joseph, they lay out their gifts, gold, frankincense, uh, and myrrh. They said they, they are they are not of the Jewish race. They are not of the Jewish people, the Israelites. They are of a foreign nation. They are Gentiles. So this symbolizes that Christ came for all people, including the Gentiles, and that prophecy that I will make you a light to all the nations, to the Gentiles, has been fulfilled. And in the gifts themselves, there is symbolism in these gifts. They aren't just you know random gifts. Uh, you know, <laughs> right. the Magi did not you know, stop at Macy's on the way to mm-hmm. to the crib. They brought these gifts with intention and they have great important symboli- symbolism. Gold is given to the Christ as recognizing him as, as the king, the royal one. And so, so his kingship is honored by giving him gold, the, the most precious, you know, metal that, that symbolizes the gold of the crown uh, of the king of the universe. The frankincense, this incense, which is burned and provides that fragrant smoke, is symbolizing of an offering. Uh, In other words, incense is offered as sacrifice, uh, as we do at the Mass even now. It's it's part of the symbolism of this incense is to symbolize an offering to God, the offering of our prayers. But this incense is given to Christ because he is to become an offering. He is to become an oblation. He is to offer and lay down his life as a sacrifice, to be consumed, if you will, to be offered. For our salvation, so the incense symbolizes the sacrifice that Christ will one day offer on the altar of the cross, and finally the myrrh, which is anointment and an oil. Anointment is, is a, a sort of a premonition of the anointing of Christ's body, which will take place uh, upon His death. Uh, so it's it's really a prediction of His death. So in it, it, these gifts, which sound wonderful, uh, given you know at Christmas time in this Christmas season actually uh, uh, forebode uh, things to come that uh, you know are, are, are not going to be pleasant, the sacrifice, mm-hmm. death, and the burial of Christ, but he remains king.
1: Right. And we read that last line in the scripture that the Magi departed for their country by another way. They were warned, like we heard Joseph being warned in a dream to take a particular
2: direction yeah to avoid her.
1: Right. Right, exactly. It was a bad character. <laughs> and they they had a big part to play in in keeping the child safe and and what they did and their willingness to follow.
2: Yeah, unfortunately, uh, as we record this program today, Dina Marie, we're on the feast of the Holy Innocents. Right. Uh, we celebrate today the the really the martyrdom, the first martyrs who offered their life for Christ even though they could not as the fathers of the church have said, even they, though they could not witness to Christ with his voice, they witnessed to him by the shedding of their blood. Because remember, Herod wanted the wise men, the magi, to report back to him what they had found, where they had found him. In other words, to pinpoint, if you will, his location and his family. Who is this newborn king of the Jews that Herod saw as a threat to himself because he's supposed to be the king of the Jews? So, because the wise men go by another route, uh, they aren't able to report directly to Herod where the Christ child is born and where he lives, uh, which spares, of course, Jesus uh, until his public life and ministry and then later his death for our salvation at the, at the, at the planned time uh, of, of God. But unfortunately, it leads to the slaughter of the innocent children because Herod doesn't know where the Christ child is, where this newborn King of the Jews is. So he issues an order that all uh, male children under the age of two are to be slaughtered. Uh, So he makes sure that he gets him. And in fact, he doesn't, because as you mentioned, Joseph is warned in a dream to take the child and flee with his mother into Egypt until the time of uh, reign of King Herod is over. Uh, And then he returns. It just shows the, the darkness in Herod's heart, his his pride, his 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 self-absorption. He's it's all about himself, and he can't stand that that he would not be uh, uh, that there would be a threat to him in some way. <laughs> in this little tiny child, uh, his hardness of heart,
0: mm-hmm. his
2: lack his lack of openness to the will and the plan of God, and even in his life. I mean, what a joy it could have been for Herod had he also come to discover the Christ. In this newborn child. Uh, Unfortunately, his, his uh, hardness of heart and his selfishness uh, and his pride uh, keep him from being able to see uh, the great visitation of of God in, in, in his own time.
1: Right. Right. Well, and Archbishop, we've just got a few more minutes, but you mentioned the season of Christmas. We begin with the birth of Christ. And then it's kind of interesting. We look at that final Sunday, which will be seeing the baptism. So John the Baptist comes to the scene and we see this declaration of who Christ is from his father in heaven. You know, the significance of that feast to close officially or liturgically, I guess, our Christmas season
2: yeah, you know, it's, it's interesting. The church's liturgy, and I think I've mentioned this in a previous program. The church's liturgy, especially in the liturgy of the hours, the divine office, the Roman breviary, it connects these three events, the Feast of the Epiphany, the Baptism of the Lord, and the Wedding Feast at Cana. And interesting, uh, two of those mysteries now are mysteries of the luminous mysteries that St. John Paul II gave us ministries that manifest Christ. And that's that's the connection. These three mysteries. And it's interesting because we're talking about you'll see in the antiphons even uh during the divine office, the liturgy of the hours, references to the to the wedding feast of Cana, uh and the baptism of the Lord and the and the and the appearance of the star, the Magi. These are all three mysteries that manifest Christ. And that's what it's really all about. We uh, we celebrate the birth of Christ first and who he is and who has come among us in that uh, divinity that we celebrate on the Mother of God? But then, as we move toward the close of the the middle to the close of the Christmas season, now it becomes about manifesting Christ to the world, making Him known. He's not meant to be kept secret. He is to be manifested to the world. So He's manifested by the star to the Gentiles, to the nations, to the wise men who represent them. Second, He is manifested as baptism in the Jordan, because when John the Baptist baptizes Jesus in the Jordan, remember, the heavens are opened, the voice of the Father is heard, the, uh, the Holy Spirit uh, descends upon Jesus in the form of a dove, and the voices, or the Father's voice is heard from heaven, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. It's a manifestation of Christ. The Father and the Spirit manifest the eternal Son of God at his baptism. And then third, the wedding feast at Cana. Why that? Because that is the first of Jesus' miracles. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's, a, it's a miracle that's in the gospel of St. John. In John's gospel, the miracles are always seen as signs that point to the divinity of Christ. John, the, the evangelist, sees them that, that way. So the wedding feast at Cana is the first miracle of Christ, is his first sign that points to his divinity. So another it's another mystery that manifests who Christ is, uh, the divine son of God. So that's that's sort of the 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 mix of those uh, those mysteries sort of in this in this Christmas season mm-hmm. in which we celebrate the birth and the manifestation to all the nations of, of Christ, the savior of the world.
1: Yeah, it's like the um, the joyful mysteries of our rosary are wonderful for the Advent season. And now I think those luminous mysteries to just pray upon those as we continue in the Christmas season to remind ourselves of Christ. And I've been seeing your motto, Jesus changes everything. So I think right. that's going to be the motto that we that's take into new, 2022. That's my, new,
2: that's my new reminder to everyone. Jesus changes everything. The Amen. world will never be the same.
1: That's right. Well, I appreciate this time to spend, Archbishop. I wish you a blessed new year, and would you help us close with your blessing?
2: Yes. And during this Christmas season, and through the powerful intercession of the Virgin Mother of God, Mary Most Holy, may the blessing of Almighty God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit come down upon all of you, your families and loved ones, and be with you this day and forever. Amen.
1: Amen. And thank you for joining us on this edition of The Voice of the Shepherd. We look forward to sharing with you again next week. For Archbishop Alexander Sample, I'm Dina Marie. And until our next encounter, may you have a blessed week and a blessed new year.
0: You've been listening to The Voice of the Shepherd with Archbishop Alexander Sample a production of the Archdiocese of Portland in Oregon. To subscribe to this podcast and access to all of our past shows, visit moderndayradio.com. Please email your comments and questions for the show to info at archdpdx.org. Learn more about the Archdiocese of Portland in Oregon online at archdpdx.org. Peace be with you.